Well, do you ever feel inadequate, like you're just not enough? I often feel like that, like things are beyond me. And I guess that's, uh, that makes sense for many of us in a modern world. There's so much out there, so much that we're exposed to, things and people that look so big, uh, opportunities that are missed, ideas that we don't know about. We're exposed to so much in our world and in a big world that has so much going on, it can make us feel quite small, inadequate, not enough. Well, that's what many Christians have felt over the years as they've sought to live the Christian life in the context of our world. Many Christians have felt that they're not quite good enough, that they're not adequate, that they're not enough. And that, I think, was especially the case for those Christians in Colossae. We've been looking for the last three weeks at this book of Colossians, and we've seen that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossians. And he's writing to the Colossians because this small church that's surrounded by this very large world of the Roman Empire, this small church has found within it and been surrounded by new teachers with a new teaching, a teaching that didn't necessarily deny that Jesus is supreme, but suggested that these believers who didn't feel quite good enough, who might have felt inadequate, these believers, well, they needed to move on from this original gospel that they had heard, this gospel from Epaphras, Paul's friend, the man who had brought the gospel first to the Colossians, who would preached about Jesus. Well, these news teachers are suggesting that these Colossians aren't feeling sufficient because their gospel is not sufficient. They, in fact, need a better gospel. They need a deeper, more profound knowledge and power than this gospel that they heard from Epaphras. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing to this church in this situation, this context of these early believers feeling like they just don't have what they need. They don't have enough. It's not particularly powerful. It doesn't feel particularly real. And Paul is wanting to remind these Christian believers that if they've got Jesus, they've got enough. In essence, he's saying to, these, to this church, if you think you need Christ plus something, if you think you need this kind of mystical experience of God's knowledge and power, well, let me show you what you really need. Let me show you what you need by showing you who Jesus is. And that's really what Paul does after this introduction that we've been looking at in the first 12 or so verses. The Apostle Paul is seeking to address this these false teachers and the temptation that this church has to believe what these false teachers are saying. And he's wanting to help them see just what they have already 
in the Lord Jesus. Because when they know who Jesus is, they'll recognise this false teaching for what it is. And so we this morning need to ask ourselves, particularly in light of often when we feel like we are inadequate and when we feel like we aren't enough, we need to ask the question that Paul is wanting to ask of the Colossians. Who do you think Jesus is? Jesus himself asked this question. He asked it of his disciples at that day at Caesarea Philippi where he asked them, well, what are the crowds saying about me? And then he turns to them and says, well, what, are, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And that is really the most important question that we can ask ourselves. Because when we feel inadequate, often the response that we have is to look inside ourselves and to see if we can find those things about ourselves that we're we're really comfortable about, where we can feel a bit better about ourselves. But the Apostle Paul doesn't ask the Colossians to look at themselves, to feel or to know that they're enough. He asks them to look at the Lord Jesus He asked them to see the Lord Jesus in a fresh way. He reminds them of just the extraordinary power that Jesus has and that power that is on offer for them if they knew who he was. This morning we're going to start to have a look at verses 15 to 20. We won't finish that. But I want to also back us up on a couple of verses that we've been looking at Um, over the last couple of weeks in verses 13 to 14. So we're going to look at verses 13 to 14 and 15 to 16. We're going to see really four realities about the Lord Jesus, about his sufficiency, because when we know that he is sufficient, then we can know who we are in light of who he is. We're going to see, firstly, that he is the son of love. Secondly, we're going to see that he is the redeemer. Thirdly, we're going to see that he is the image of God. And fourthly, we're going to see that he is the firstborn. So that, that phrase, uh, that sorry, that, uh, that firstly, that he is the son of his love. There in verse 13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 13 reminds us that the Lord Jesus is the son of the Father's love. Now, it's interesting because verse 13 actually points us back to the Father. He is the son of his Father's love. And some translations have it as his beloved son, as the NIV has, and that's an important aspect, that the son, the eternal son, is the object of the Father's love. He's the one that the Father loves. That is true. But that's not all Paul is saying here. Christ is not only the object of the Father's love. He's not only the one who the Father loves. Christ himself is the embodiment and the manifestation of God's love. Christ is not only the one who God loves. Christ is the standing witness 
of God's love to his people because he has come to us. And it's that manifestation of God's saving love, his plan that he set in motion to redeem the world from sin and destruction and make people for himself that we see in this letter. We see this reality explained as the Apostle Paul in verses 15 to 20 will explain to us what's gone on at the cross. See, the cross is not about the Father getting the, uh, sorry, the cross is not about getting the Father's love as his children. The cross is the instrument by which God can be both loving and just and righteous in his redemption of his people. The cross happened precisely because the Father has ordained it out of his love. So firstly, Christ is the object of the Father's love. And he's the demonstration of the Father's love. But secondly, Christ is our Redeemer. And we see that in verse 14. Uh, it reads, in whom, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, Christ is not simply the revelation of the Father. And there are many people who teach that Christ just, just shows us who God is. And that's, in one sense, true. Christ does show us who God is, but he came more than just to reveal to us what God is like. He came to redeem us. He came to rescue us. Christ has come to rescue us and redeem us from sin. And if we say that Christ has revealed God and nothing else, we are cutting ourselves short. The Lord Jesus has been active in revealing who God is. But he's also been active in drawing us and bringing us to God and delivering us from the tyranny of sin. And this metaphor of redemption has this, this transactional, this, this commercial nature to it. In Paul's day, if you wanted to set free a slave... You paid a purchase price for the slave you redeemed. You literally bought that slave and set him free. And this is exactly the language that Paul is using here. And he says that in Christ, this is what's happened for us. In Christ, in his death on the cross, that price has been paid. That costly price has been paid to set us free. He has redeemed us at enormous cost. He has brought us both forgiveness of sin and relationship with the Father. He has pardoned us from sin and he's delivered us from sin. And every one of us struggles with sin. Even though we've been delivered, even though we've been pardoned, we're guilty of sin and therefore we are guilty of its penalty. And we're also enslaved to sin, and so we're also under its power. But in Christ, in his redemption, in the way that he has rescued us, he's redeemed us from both. He's redeemed us from the penalty of sin, and he's redeemed us from the power of sin. These Colossians were hearing perhaps this teaching that had come to them that said, look, well, yes, 
Christ has forgiven your sins, but, but do you want to be released from the power of darkness? Don't you want to be released also from perhaps the angelic powers and the forces of evil? Then if you do, you need to be initiated into these particular special rituals that, are, that you don't yet know about. This is the kind of message that was circulating in Colossae. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, Christ redeemed you from the domain of darkness. To talk about going somewhere else or doing something else in order to be relieved from the dominion of darkness in Paul's mind is ridiculous. When you have been redeemed by Christ, you've been totally redeemed. You've been properly redeemed. You've been fully redeemed. You were brought under the lordship of Christ. And when you're brought under the lordship of Christ, no one reigns where he reigns. You're no longer, Paul is saying, under the dominion of sin. You're no longer under the guilt of sin. And this is important for us to be reminded of. So often there is this weight that we feel as we live the Christian life, as we realise our sin, as our sin is pointed out by others, there's this burden, and sometimes in that burden, the kind of ideas that were circulating in Colossae can sometimes enter our minds. You see, when Paul says we are redeemed from the dominion of darkness, he does not mean that we are sinless. He does not mean that we are perfect. But what he does mean is that we are no longer, no longer under the dominion of sin. We're no longer in that area and arena and kingdom for which sin reigns. We've been moved into another kingdom where Christ reigns and yet we still sin. But our lives are not characterised by how they were when we were in that dominion of darkness, when we were gripped with sin. We now have a bias and a bent towards righteousness. When we sin, we're frustrated by it. And that reminds us, firstly, that we sin, but secondly, that we've been brought into this new kingdom, this kingdom of light, and sin frustrates us, sin gets us down because we know we're in this kingdom of light. Sin doesn't belong in this kingdom of light. And one day when Christ returns, we will be free fully and we will be in his light and we will be entirely pure in his light. But until then, we fight. We fight with our sin. We're frustrated by it. We're not just remorseful of it we're repentant of it and we know that even though we continue to sin and even though there are sins which keep holding us down they in the kingdom of his light are not the rule they are the exception thirdly we see that christ is the image of god and we see that phrase come up there in verse 15 he is the image of the invisible God. Now this is, in some ways, a bit of a tricky phrase because we know that in Genesis chapter 2 and elsewhere in Paul, we see uh, in the scriptures that man, 
bears the image of God. And so when it's talking about Jesus Christ being the image of God, is Paul suggesting that Jesus is something less than God? Well, no. And we know this for two reasons. Firstly, he's about to tell us that he is the one for which the world was created. And every one of particularly his Jewish audience would have known that the person who creates the world is God himself. And also, he's going to stress that Christ didn't just create some of it, some of our world, he created all of it. And the whole world was created for him. So the idea that Christ is in some way not properly divine because he is the firstborn is in no way entering Paul's mind. What he's using here is an image. He's using a word picture when he uses the phrase image of God. And the key to that phrase is there in verse 15, in that little word, invisible. He is the image of the invisible God. See, what Paul is saying here and what we know from the scriptures is that God is spirit. We can't see him. He doesn't have a body like we do, but Christ, the Lord Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is God manifest. He is God represented to us. What the invisible God is like, well, it's what Jesus is like. He is God incarnate. He is God in flesh. He is God made visible. You remember perhaps that in John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to Philip. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus says, you've been with me so long and you've still not seen. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying, if you've looked on my face, you've seen the, what the Father is like. Um, one theologian kind of turns that uh, backwards and says, God is Christ-like and in him there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. See, you want to know what God the Father is like? Look at the Son. He is the perfect reflection of the Father. He is God in flesh. He is the representation and the manifestation of who God is. He is the image of the invisible God. Not less than him, but equal to him. And the visible representation of that spiritual reality that transcends all our senses. So finally, we're going to see that Christ is the firstborn of creation. He's not just the son of God's love. He's not just our redeemer. He's not just the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. And again, that phrase, firstborn, brings there in verse 15 to mind some questions. Is Paul saying that Christ is not, is perhaps the, the highest of all creatures? You know, there, there's God and then there's us and then Christ is in between. He's kind of like the head, the prefect, uh, the, the school captain over the world just below God. Well, 
We know that that's not the case because of the very next phrase there in verse 16. It says, for in him all things were created. Paul doesn't include Christ in the created order. Why? Because Christ was the one who brought creation into being, all of it. And so Paul goes on at, at pains to stress that this doesn't just mean earthly realities. He's talking here about heavenly realities. Look what he says there in verse 15. He says, In the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. Christ is not only the creator of creation. Creation was created for him. He's the reason it was made. He is the beginning of creation. He is the source of creation, but he's also the end of creation. He is God over all. But what does Paul mean by firstborn? Well, he means the same thing, I think, that the writer of Hebrews means in chapter 1, verse 2, where he says that Christ is the heir of all things, the inheritor of all things. Because here the context of firstborn is the context of royalty. The context of a king is being spoken about, a monarch. And when you think of an heir in that context, you think of the one who will be given all the power, all the glory, all the rule of that kingdom. And so Paul is speaking primarily of Christ's power here. Not, not a priority of time sequence. He's not the, the one first chronologically to be born. No, he's saying that Christ is the firstborn, the one who was born first, then everything else came. He's, saying, he's not saying, sorry, that Christ was born first, then everything else came. He's saying that Christ had supremacy over everything. He's the firstborn. He's the father's heir. He's the heir over all things. And he sustains his relationship with his heavenly father. He's begotten, but he's not created. He's the eternal word who stood in relation to that same first creation as the word was brought into creation through Christ. And now, as Paul goes on to say, he's the one who stands as the incarnate one in this new act of creation as the church is brought into the world. Christ as the eternal world word brings the world into being. Christ incarnate brought the church into being at the cross. And we'll look more of that at that next week. Well, in closing, we've seen that Christ is the son of God's love. He's the great and primary object of God's love, but he's the expression of God's love. Christ is our redeemer. He's not only redeemed us from guilt, he's redeemed us from the power of darkness. He's the very image of God, the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. He's creator of everything. And the Apostle Paul says to the Colossians, after he's put this picture of the supremacy of who Christ is, he says, where exactly do you think you're going to go 
for deliverance from the world's powers? Where else do you think you're going to go for a deeper knowledge of God? Where else could you go other than this supreme one, the Lord Jesus? This is the Christ who has saved you. And this is the Christ that you don't move beyond into a second stage of deeper mystical encounter. No, this is the one that you stay with. The one who originally saved you is the one who keeps you going. Where are you going? He has it all. The Lord Jesus has it all in his hands. The whole world is in his hands. He brought it into being. Our whole redemption is in his hands. He brought it about. Why else would you go anywhere else? And so we need to ask ourselves that same question. When we're tempted to feel like we are inadequate, like we're not enough, how are we going to the Lord Jesus? How are we going to where he is, where his fullness is? Are we going to where his meaning for life is? Are we going to where the redemption that he has brought is? See, we need to keep coming to the Lord Jesus. We need to keep coming back and back to him and to see his supremacy over our lives and in our world because there is not something better out there for us other than in Christ. You have not enough, not because you have Christ, but because you don't know the Christ you have. Paul is saying with his apostolic authority to these Colossians, in Christ you have it all. And this morning we can be reminded of that same truth, that in Jesus we have it all. There is no hope outside of him and his cross. But if we come to him and if we trust in him, we will receive all that we need and more because he is supreme. He's incomparable in his supremacy. He brought the world into being. He brought us into salvation. And we as Christians need to know him more and to trust him for all that he has for us. Amen.